chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, as we continue moving through the book of Luke here, we are seeing what Jesus is doing on the journey to Jerusalem. Starting in chapter 9, he had set his eyes, set his face towards Jerusalem and was on his way to go there. And he wasn't going there merely for the Passover. He was going to be the Passover lamb. And so as he is on his way, he has been teaching his disciples many things. And here he is going to predict yet again his death. I titled this as the Messiah predicts, because that's exactly what the Messiah was doing. One of the things that is really interesting about prediction, or prophets in particular, is that the Bible gives very specific things about prophets and what they're supposed to do. Uh, Sometimes they would predict the future, yes, but many times they were simply proclaiming the message of God. They were saying, thus says the Lord. Sometimes they were saying, this is what the Lord is saying. Sometimes they were saying, this is what the Lord has said. And sometimes they are saying, this is what is going to happen. Here we see Jesus who is predicting what is going to happen. Now, should you listen to Jesus? Should you, you are not, not that you're here in 2023, but you, you are one of his disciples. You are one of his followers. Should you listen to what Jesus says? The, the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 13, first of all, when a prophet would come, if a prophet spoke something or dreamed a dream and said, I dreamt this thing, and then these things came true, says, that doesn't necessarily verify that what they say is always going to be true. Because if he then goes on and says, now go and follow these other gods. I had this dream. I had this vision. I did this miracle. And this thing has occurred. Now let's go off and follow other gods. He says, don't listen to them. So just because miracles occur, that does not mean that the prophet is truly from God. And, and God says, I've done this to test you. But it goes on further in Deuteronomy 18 and speaks of a, a prophet that God says that they were to listen to the prophets, not to the other people that the nations listen to. The magicians, the fortune tellers. See, because those people, the the philosophers, they have their own worldview. And he says, don't listen to them. You are to listen to my prophets. You are to listen to my word. I think we can gain a lot from that. We are to not follow the world's philosophy. We are to follow God and what He has clearly revealed to us. But in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 22, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It says, but the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Later on, it goes on to say that if a prophet does something and it does not come to pass, you are to not listen to that one, but rather you are to remove them. Matter of fact, you are to kill them. They shall die. The New Testament understands that this one great prophet in Deuteronomy 18, that the one that the Lord would raise up to be like Moses, a greater Moses, that this was Jesus. And so when when Jesus is predicting His death, 
this is going to verify to the people, to the disciples and to the others, yes, I should listen to Jesus. That's who I need to follow. I don't need to listen to the other people around me. I need to follow Jesus. He is verifying the fact that He indeed is the true and great prophet. So, Having understood that, Jesus has done many great signs and many wonders in His ministry, and here he is, he is predicting once again His death and His resurrection. If this doesn't happen fully and completely, then He is shown to be a false prophet. But as we look at this, you're going to see that this is not a mere generic prediction of death, but it is with stunning detail that He is predicting the kind of death and resurrection that He would undertake. One of the unique aspects of this passage is that Luke records that Jesus says that He will be turned over to the Gentiles. Now, when we read through that, we may just quickly read over that and not really think through that. But we're going to take some time to kind of unpackage that and see what that means and how that had to play out. So the theme this morning, as it was last week, because we looked at verse 31 last week, we'll quickly review it this week, but the theme is that the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus was no accident. But it was the very direct planned mission of God. The the coming of Jesus is the pinnacle of all history. And it is this that we look to Jesus and we can truly follow Him. We can truly fellowship with God because of what has taken place. We looked last week at verse 31, Jesus' prediction of the prophets He says, in taking the twelve, He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Working backwards, He states that everything is going to be accomplished. It's not that, well, we're going up to Jerusalem, and I hope these things are going to happen. He says they will happen. There is a guarantee that these things are going to happen. And these things that He's going to explain are horrible. they, They are in detail they are fulfilled all by the prophets and that is why jesus is going to be the passover lamb the shadow of things before the sacrificial system would come to an end for the great messiah would fulfill it everything written about the son of man and the prophets would come to pass the son of man the great son of man spoken of in daniel 7 and we looked at how the prophets the suffering death resurrection uh, were all fulfilled. Genesis 3, Psalm 2, 16, 22, 34, 41, 69, Isaiah 50, 53, Daniel 9, Zechariah 13. Just to give you a couple. Those, all of those things were fulfilled in Jesus. Very specific details about what was going to happen. And it was no accident. It was the definite plan of God. As the disciples realized, for later they would preach in Acts 2, 22 and 23, that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So Jesus would go to Jerusalem. He would go on His own and He would give Himself over as found in the prophets and thus fulfilling it. But I want you to see next what Jesus says is going to happen. 
He, he doesn't just say, I'm going to go there and I'm going to die. As a matter of fact, it's more important that we understand that Jesus did not come uh, just to die. He also came to live. Think about that for a second. He came to live to fulfill the law, the perfect life that we can't live. You may have tried to live that perfect life this week, and you probably failed, like I did. Right? We, we tried, and, and we, we even set personal goals, and we fail at those things. But here, Jesus came to live for us. He came to, to follow the law perfectly. He is coming to, to fulfill what the first Adam didn't. The first Adam didn't fulfill it. So our hope, that's why our hope is in Him. Our hope is never in a, another person to that extent. If Jesus could have just died right away, then when Herod had all the babies in Jerusalem, or in Bethlehem rather, killed, why didn't he just die then? And then be raised up again as a, as a baby. No, there, were, there was a definite plan that God had for Messiah. And Jesus has fulfilled this. He has been tempted, and He overcame that temptation. He has done the signs and wonders, the miracles, the, given the teaching. He has fulfilled what He has come to do. And so His active part of ministry is, is finished, so to speak, in the passive aspect, although it's not passive in the fact that He is entering in it, but we call it the passive aspect where He is giving Himself over and other people are going to be in control. Yet He is in control. That's one of the things that you have to see is that God somehow, I don't know how, I don't have the answer to that, and neither do you, but somehow God works and moves in human events and through human people to accomplish His great, incredible, perfect will. And that's one of the things that I want to show you. He, he lists four things that are going to happen to Him. Now, Luke omits what Matthew 20, verse 18 states. And, and Mark also makes this same observation. When Jesus is given the same thing, Matthew and Luke note that we are going to Jerusalem, Jesus says, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death. Now what is fascinating about that is God is going to use this to take Him to the cross to accomplish all of these other things. There are four things in verse 32 that Jesus states. They're all written in a passive sense. Notice what they are. He's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon. These are all things that are going to be done to Jesus. And it really all starts with that first one, that He is going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. Now this is fascinating. This is the first time when Jesus is talking about the fact that He is going to be betrayed or He is going to be killed. He is going to go, die, and be raised on the third day. This is Again, this is the sixth time that Jesus has mentioned this in the Gospel of Luke. And so we see this is the first time that He mentions this specific thing about being delivered over to the Gentiles. Now you have to think about this in, uh, in one sense. Jesus is living where? He's living in Israel. 
He's living in Israel. He's ministering in Galilee. He's going to Jerusalem for the, the festival, for the Passover time. He is, his friends are Jews. He is teaching in the synagogues. He's, he's totally and deeply immersed in Jewish culture. And yet he says he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. The, the disciples, I have to believe that the disciples, when they heard this, they said, Gentiles, what are you talking about? Respectfully, Jesus, what, what on earth are you talking about? How is that going to happen? We don't even have anything to do with the Gentiles, really. Well, Jesus says this in, for two reasons. Number one, because the Jews essentially didn't have the authority to enact capital punishment. And that's exactly what was going to be doing. They didn't have that authority. Now, Rome cared more about power and peace than they really did about the law. So, if they were to put down some little scrub kill, stone some scrub. They didn't really care about that, as long as there's peace. But you see, Jesus is very well known. So to take Jesus out, so to speak, that's going to create quite a problem, isn't it? So, so the Jews are going to need backup. They're going to need cover to kill Jesus. And so what they're going to do is they're going to go to, they're going to, go to the Gentiles. They're going to go to Rome. Now, number two is the manner of execution. The prophets very clearly speak of Jesus' back being whipped. We're going to see that. The Jews speak of uh, Him being pierced. Read Isaiah 53. Also speaking of that they will see the One on whom they have pierced when He returns. They will look upon Him. So, so Jesus is going to be killed in a very specific way. How is that going to be accomplished? Now, what's fascinating is the, the Jewish leaders don't know anything about, I mean, rather the, the, the Romans, they don't know anything about this. And yet they are going to be players, willing players of their own will to, to enact this. And same thing with the Jews. So how is this going to be accomplished? How is Jesus going to be delivered over to the Gentiles? Well, there are going to be two trials. Now, trials when you go to the trial you are in the hands of the court you don't really have power over them they 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 move and 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 things get pushed off and and uh, you don't have you don't have control over that you are at their mercy so it seems but god is going to very definitely use Two different trials, and there are three phases in each trial to move Jesus to being turned over to the Gentiles. So I hope that you will just step back and see the marvel and the wonder at how God is going to work this out. I want to give these to you and share this. The first phase, when Jesus is being delivered over to the Gentiles, it begins with the first Jewish trial. When they arrest Jesus, he is first of all, John 18, Jesus is taken to Annas. Now, Annas is a former high priest from 6 to 15 AD, and he was Caiaphas' father-in-law. Caiaphas at that time was the current high priest. It was here that Peter and presumably John followed Christ. 
Peter denies Jesus for the very first time at the first phase of this trial. Jesus is questioned about his teaching and also about himself. Now, this first phase of the trial, which was taken not to the high priest, but to the high priest emeritus, it was kind of, uh, well, first of all, it was illegal, but it was kind of done to hopefully slide this thing in. In other words, if there was not going to be any pushback from anyone, this could have actually worked. So you can see the devious plan that the scribes and Pharisees had to kind of get Jesus This trial was illegal because a Jewish trial had to rely on actual witnesses, not merely on interrogation of the defendant. Since Annas was the high priest emeritus, he may have thought that it wasn't necessary. See, this isn't an official trial, but it kind of is. So we, because it's not an official, we could kind of skirt some of the laws, some of the rules here to get Jesus. But you see, Jesus actually stands up for Himself. He answers and tells them that His teachings were always in public. And He asked that the witnesses be brought forth that speak of His blasphemy. And so the result was, the official knew that Jesus was rebuking Annas for this unfair hearing. And so He struck him with the palm of His hand and sent him to Caiaphas the high priest. So the very first phase of the Jewish trial didn't actually work. Jesus demanded the witnesses. He demanded truth be given. So then Jesus is sent to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. This is the second phase. This is found in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. Uh, For instance, Matthew gives a, a larger account of this, whereas Luke just mentions it in one verse. Okay? And so here, when he is sent to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin is essentially the supreme court of Israel. There were 71 members. It was here at this part of the trial that that they sought false witnesses against Jesus, but none were found. And so the witnesses were, false witnesses were brought in and their testimonies did not agree with one another. Finally, two witnesses quoted Jesus as saying that He would destroy the temple and rebuild it. And what's fascinating about that is if you read Mark's Gospel, Mark declares that even those two witnesses didn't agree. So Jesus kept silent in response to these men because Jesus actually said those things, didn't He? But He didn't mean what they were twisting the the words to mean. And so then Jesus was asked if he was the Son of God by Caiaphas, who was the high priest. And Jesus affirmed that he was. It was then that Caiaphas tore his clothes and pronounced blasphemy. And the result was they pronounced Jesus worthy of death. It was at this time that they spit upon him. They struck him in the face, they mocked him, and they asked him as they were hitting him to prophesy about who is hitting you. They waited till morning for the Sanhedrin to render its verdict. The reason for this was because they couldn't have a trial at night. So they had to wait till morning to make it seem like all of this was fresh and new. Now, what you need to know is it is at this point, 
Okay? It is right here at this point when Jesus has been condemned. They're mocking Him. They're beating Him. They're spitting on Him. It is at this point that all four Gospels record that Peter denies Jesus. The Sanhedrin, in the morning, they render their verdict. They waited till morning because in a criminal trial, they couldn't... It wouldn't be legal if they did it during the night. So although they had already had the trial, they were withholding the verdict till the morning to render their official decision. Once again, they go through these motions. They ask Jesus, are you the Christ? Remember, that is a term for Messiah. The, the anointed one, he would be the great prophet from Deuteronomy 18. He would be the, the great prophet who would come and deliver the people. This is the one they were waiting for. And Jesus answered them saying that if he told them, they would not believe him or let him go. And so they asked him again, and this time he affirmed it just as he had done the night before. And so, once again, to make it legal, they said that they had heard blasphemy themselves. Do you see what just happened there? Who became the witnesses? The Sanhedrin. The the very court that they were supposed to be impartial, they became the witnesses. That would be akin to you going to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court suing you and then the Supreme Court making testimony against you. And then they're going to render the verdict. Does that sound fair? That that is total, complete injustice. But God is going to use that to bring about His will. And so, as a result, they said that they heard the blasphemy themselves. They were the witnesses. So they led Him to Pilate. Because Pilate reserved the right for execution in capital cases. They wanted to try to tie up all the loose ends. And so then Jesus was sent to be executed. It was right after this that Judas repented and hanged himself. When I say repented, not pure repentance, but he realized what had done. He gave the money back there in Matthew 27. And so Jesus goes on to his second trial. The Roman trial. It would involve three phases as well. The first one found in all four Gospels, He was delivered to Pilate. The multitude delivers Jesus to Pilate and they begin to give false accusations against Him. Here are the accusations that they give against Jesus. So now Jesus is given over to the Gentiles. Do you see how He is given to them? But the Gentiles have to receive Jesus as far as allows them to kill Him. So, so they, are, they receive Jesus... And the multitude say, well, he has, first of all, perverted the nation. And second of all, he forbids the paying of taxes to Caesar because he said he was the king. So it goes from this sort of blasphemy to to he's trying to subvert Rome. They knew that if they could twist things that way, that that would render the verdict of death that they were longing for. At first, Pilate tells them, listen, go judge Jesus yourself. We don't. We don't see anything that's worthy of this. But they tell them, well, we can't because we can't condemn Him to death. So then Pilate asks Christ if He is a king. Jesus affirms it. But then Pilate states that he finds no fault in Jesus the first time. 
The result of this is that he is pressured by the people for a conviction. And so Pilate learns that Christ is from Galilee, the jurisdiction of Herod, and he sends Christ to him. So he, he's looking for an out, and so he gives this. He, he realizes, wait a minute, I, I might be able to get away with that. I might be able to please everybody because, you know, Pilate is this wishy-washy ruler. So he sends him to Herod Antipas, who is the Tetrarch of Galilee, and he is uh, sent to Herod, who is in Jerusalem, just like Pilate is, because of the Passover. You see how God worked all these things together? That, they're all, that all of the rulers and Pilate and Herod, they're all in Jerusalem for the Passover. And so Herod met Jesus with great enthusiasm, because he had always wanted to meet Jesus. He had heard about Jesus, but he never actually got to meet him. He heard about all these things that Jesus was doing, these healings, these miracles, but Jesus knew what kind of a man Herod was. Herod was an evil, very vile, wicked man. And Herod met Jesus because he wanted to be entertained by Jesus' miracles. It says that Christ was questioned with, quote-unquote, many words. But Jesus, at this trial, never said a thing to Herod. He never replied to him. He was adamantly accused by the chief priests and the scribes. And so Herod and his men, when Jesus wouldn't perform for them, they said, well, we will make you perform for us. So that's when they clothed him in, in, uh, and mocked him in the gorgeous robe and they beat him and mocked him, and they said, we're sending you back to Pilate. So for the third time now, Jesus is on trial here with the Romans. And Pilate knows now, Mark records that, Pilate, that Jesus is given over to Pilate because of envy. That's what it says. He knew that this was not true. He said he, he figured it out. The only reason Jesus is here is because they're envious of him. They don't like the fact of all of these things going on that are taking the, the limelight off of themselves. And it is here in Matthew, he records, that Pilate's wife warns him not to deal with Jesus. And so Pilate tries to skirt it once again, and he offers one person to be released, Barabbas or Jesus, and the people cry for Barabbas to be released. And so Jesus then is taken by Pilate, who thinks if I do this, maybe this will please the people. Pilate takes Jesus, and he scorns him and scourges him and places thorns on his head and a purple robe, a royalty that is placed on him, and he is mocked and he is beaten. And then Jesus is brought out to the people who shout, crucify him. But Luke records that Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. And neither did Herod. So there's no fault in Jesus that they find. Pilate tells the people to take Jesus and to crucify him because he finds no fault in him. They demand he be executed because of their law though. And so after pressure, Pilate again the third time announces that Jesus is innocent. Pilate then becomes afraid because, and, and is questions Christ again. And the Jews tell Pilate that if he lets him go, that he's an enemy of Caesar. And so then Pilate, in fear, 
turns Christ over to the Jews with the blessing of the Romans to crucify Him. So now they have everything that they want. Now they have everything they need. All the mocking, the scourging, the beatings, all of these things were done. Jesus, it says that He would be turned over to the Gentiles, delivered over. That is what you have just seen. Do you see how God worked this miraculous thing out to get Him delivered over to the Gentiles to die this specific kind of death? He wasn't just going to die that someone was going to come up and take a sword and thrust it in him. He was going to die a very specific death. Jesus says in verse 32 that he will also be mocked. There was no respect, only mockery. This is mentioned many times, especially in the Gospel of Matthew. That when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. He was shamefully treated this, I, this word is not specifically used in the gospel accounts uh, in, in the actual Passion Week, but this, this phrase, the, the imagery is given. Bach notes that the imagery as well as the term is significant because in the Old Testament and other Jewish literature, it describes the scoffer who works unrighteously and proudly against the righteous. In other words, they treated Jesus the way scoffers treated those who were in need. This is brought about in Psalm uh, 94, 2-7, just to read a portion of it. It says, speaking of the scoffers, that they crush your people, O Lord, they afflict your heritage. Here's what they do. Here is how they treated him. They kill the widow and the sojourner, and they murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see the God of Jacob does not perceive. Do, do you see what the scoffers do? Do you see how they shamefully treat people? How they shamefully treat God? That God doesn't even see this. He doesn't care. They murder the widows, murder the orphans. And these are the way that they treat God's people and they blaspheme. And they said that's how they treat Jesus. They're treating Jesus the same way. They spit upon Him. This word in the original text is an actual onomatopoeia. Okay? You, know, you know what that is, right? Onomatopoeia? That, that is a word that sounds like the word actually is. Like buzz. You know? Buzz or plop. Okay? This is the word eptuo. Okay, we, we you kind of maybe you've heard the that ptui, right, right, a spit ptui, right, eptuo. That that's the that's the word. So you learned something today, all right. So that that's that's the the idea. The, this word Luke speaks of this along with Mark when it says that they will mock him and they will spit on him. I hope that recently, especially, you have not been spat upon. But, you know, kids do this kind of stuff, right? The kids spit on each other sometimes. That's not permission to then go ahead and do it. But I'm just saying, sometimes they get mad and they'll spit on one another. But this is very common in places where there's not justice, where uh, there is mockery. And it's a total sign of disrespect. What more disrespectful thing could happen to you that someone walks up and spits in your face. It's gross. It's disgusting. Why such a harsh death? 
Why such a harsh death? Why not just have Jesus die? Why is it all of this? And we need to, and this is point one, if you're taking notes there in the first blank, we need to recognize God's hatred of sin in punishing Christ. You see, these are vivid pictures of the punishment that we deserve. These are vivid pictures of what God shows us in the feelings and His holiness against sin. We don't think of sin, I fear, this way. We kind of wink at it. We kind of excuse it. We kind of look past it. Or we'll just elevate one thing that God is love. And we're going to get to that, but we just elevate that God is just love and, oh, that sin thing, we don't need to worry about that. No, we, we truly are desperate in our need. And God shows His aberrant hatred of sin. And you can see that. Read Romans 3. You see that against Christ. Because of God's holiness and justice, He demands it. We we will think about various aspects uh, of things that we see people do and how we just hate it and despise it. That is us in our sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins shall die. Galatians 3.10 and Deuteronomy 27.26 says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and to do them. Think about that. Think about cursed is everyone who doesn't abide. It doesn't say cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by a few of the things you know, that you find in the Bible. Some of the things you read through the Bible and you're like, oh yeah, I like that one. Yeah, that, that, that's, a good, that's a good commandment. I like to obey that one. And then you read these other ones and you're like, whoa. I'm just skip over that one. I'll, I'll skip over that one. I, I, I'll put that one out of my mind. I'll focus on the easy ones. And, and easy ones are different for everybody, you know. Some people, I mean, they can't say two words without a lie coming out of their mouth. And some people are, you know, they're truthful to a fault. That's oh, a nice haircut you got there. Well, I mean, you know, nice in a, in a nice kind of way. Interesting. It's an interesting haircut, you know. You know, they, they have a conscience that won't allow them to actually lie. So they have to kind of, you know, okay, interesting, you know. Yeah, I don't like it. Hopefully it will turn out better next time, right? You know, I, I mean, people, but, but some people, like I said, they can't, they can't speak without lying. We, we all deal with different aspects of, 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 of sin. But God, we have to remember that it says to do everything. And cursed is the one who doesn't do that. This is what we see expressed in Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has been put to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. But we must not despair because the rest of that verse tells us that he shall see his offspring. Yes, he is going to be crushed, but there is going to be a resurrection and we'll get to that. So we have to take God's holiness and justice seriously. But look at verse 33. Verse 33 tells us that after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. 
Three more descriptions, mostly active this time. The first two are active, that others are going to do this against him. The third one is actually in the middle voice, which indicates that he will do this himself. True, the Father raises Jesus, but Jesus also raises himself. But we'll see this, first of all, that he was flogged. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this. This was something that was normally done to condemn people who were about to be crucified. You know that they would take these people and they would make your life absolutely miserable. Most people, most people do things to avoid death. Isn't that true? Most people. Most people seek to avoid death. We're trying, we, we're driving down the road. We want to stay on our side of the road because we want to avoid death. There are all kinds of things that we do to be safe to avoid death. And the Romans' job was to take a person who is condemned and to make them long for death. To make them long that death would be the great deliverance for them. And so they would flog them. They would take them, and sometimes they would do it too much if you got a a Roman soldier who was out of control. But they would take you and whip you. They would have these the, the, the whip with long straps, and they would tie pieces of bone and glass and metal and all sorts of things, whatever they could find, that would wrap around you, grab a hold of that skin, and then they would yank it off. And that was just the first whipping. They would do this over and over. Then they would put your clothes back on so that the blood would dry on it. Then they would rip your clothes back off. This was brutal stuff. So that you would long and just cry out to die. They wanted to make your life as horrible as possible. And that's exactly what they did to Jesus. They took, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike. Do you see who's in control there? I gave my back. Jesus was always in control of this. There's, a, there's an old song and it says that he could have called 10,000 angels. I don't know if you ever heard that song or not. But he could have. And, and he could have, you know, theoretically, he could have called 10,000 angels and they would, have, they would have delivered him from these people. But see, in God's covenant of redemption, this is what he said was going to do. He agreed to do this. So he willingly did this. He didn't have to, except for he loved us. He gave his back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. See, Jesus says, I did this willingly. I did this for you. It then says, they will flog him and they will kill him. This is the active means by which they will murder him. Acts 3, 14 to 15 says, But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. Now, if that would be the end, that would be a horrible ending. 
that you killed him. That was it. But see, the disciples, the apostles knew the truth because it says, whom God raised from the dead, to this, to this we are witnesses. And so they killed him. But he would not stay dead. This is what the most important aspect is. Because if Jesus would have stayed dead, then for whose sins would he have died? But the fact that he is raised, the fact that God raised him, the fact that he raises himself because he is God, because of this it says in Romans 4.25 that he is raised for our justification. If you want to put your faith in something, you put your faith in Jesus who God raised from the dead. There are a lot of people who struggle with assurance because they're always, did I say these right words? Did I really truly mean all of these things? Listen, put your faith in Christ. Put your faith in this one who has been raised from the dead. Use this. This risen Savior, know that this is what changed the disciples' lives. And this will change you. It would do us great things to do this. Point number two, uh, under point three, but the application point, is that we should understand and ponder Christ's love for enduring the cross. He endured the cross. And He did this because He loved us. God's justice demands it, and His love is what motivated it. John Piper notes, Let us not trifle with God or trivialize His love. We will never stand in awe of being loved by God until we recognize the seriousness of our sin and the justice of His wrath against us. But when by grace we awaken to our unworthiness, then we may look at the suffering of death and death of Christ and say what 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the wrath-absorbing propitiation for our sins see that's when we will truly when we see that should have been us being spit upon that should have been us being beaten that should have been us being scourged that should have been us being delivered over for an unjust unjust trial that should have been us that should have been us being killed but jesus took our place the excitement should overwhelm us and I know it's difficult that to do that sometimes in a crowd, but do you not ever get alone with Jesus and just sit there and ponder and thank Him and recognize everything He has done for us and then give Him glory and praise and surrender ourselves to Him? You see, all of these things are motivated by God's justice and His love. Now, let's just focus on the disciples super fast because there's a lot of mystery in this last verse. Uh, to be honest, I'm not a thousand percent sure of what it means. Maybe 65%. I don't know. But it's, it's a little mysterious. 
It says, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Jesus' prediction is heard, but it's hidden. Point four there, it's hidden. He hears it, or they hear it, but it's hidden. Um, they didn't understand these things. Um, in all probability, they, they understood what it meant to be killed. They understood what it meant to be spit upon. They, they, they recognized what those words meant. But probably what it means is that they couldn't figure out how in the world does that fit in God's plan. I mean, we know the prophets. We know God's plans in general. We, we, we have this idea. But for them, they were thinking Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to Jerusalem and He's going to be crowned the King. And we are going to rule and reign with Him right then and there. The Jews knew nothing of a crucified Savior. They, did, they didn't get it. What does Isaiah 53 mean? They don't know. And so for them, they thought that that was the nation of Israel going through all kinds of things. They, they had no room in their theology for a crucified Messiah. And so this is something that was hidden from them. Jesus would later, on the road to Emmaus, you remember, Jesus would later meet a couple of them and explain some of these. Their eyes would be opened and they would hear. And so they didn't understand how this could apply to God's plan. You see, they wanted a Messiah who was going to rule now. They probably, too, were very conflicted and confused. If Jesus, if this is going to happen to him, what's going to happen to us? And as some have noted, they were looking for a coronation, not a crucifixion. The saying was hidden from them. They couldn't figure it out. How could this be God's plan? Well, we look back in hindsight is 2020. We can see, because we see the resurrection, we hear the prophets preaching, and we've seen that for 2,000 years but even still, sometimes we're figuring out, Lord, look at this world. I mean, you just look at it. We've talked about this many times. This world is totally backwards, upside down, completely messed up. I mean, things that were just, I mean, it's, it's just obvious are being promoted. In, in such, and you say, Lord, how in the world is that playing into your plans? Well, the, the one thing that I would just say when we're, we're trying to figure things out, we're not always going to be able to figure things out, but even in understanding the truths in Scripture, I think that we should do this. And this is the last point, that we should ask God for understanding, but we should trust Him even when we don't understand. When, and, and I don't want to make this all about you, because this is really about Jesus. But this is what the, the disciples, instead of just trusting what Jesus... Okay, Jesus, we don't, we don't get what you're saying, but we're going to trust you. They, they, tried, they tried to take matters in their own hands. Look at what Peter did. Look at what some of the other disciples did. And so I, I think that that's something that we, we need to say, Lord, we don't always understand your ways, but, we, but we're just going to trust you. This is what you have said, and we're going to trust you. It's an act of humility. That's an act of understanding who you are and who God is. And so Jesus, because we recognize and we see the fact that He did fulfill all of these things. 
He did rise from the dead. After all of these things took place, we may not understand, but we can trust Him because He is a just, holy, righteous, loving Savior. So as we conclude, we simply think of how Christ willingly, according to God's plan, gave His life for us. And seeing the horrible nature of sin, the awfulness of the cross, the holiness of God, this should move us to seek to live unto righteousness, to love God with all of our hearts, and to find our joy in Christ, our Savior, who loved us and gave Himself for us. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come before You. We thank You for Your Holy Word. We thank You for the great plan that You have for us. As we read in Ephesians of how the the Father has chosen us, the Son has died and been raised for us, and the Spirit is our earnest, is our down payment. He is the one who draws us and seals us to the day of redemption. We thank You for Your marvelous plan of redemption. We thank You for Jesus who was not taken captive, but rather willingly did this for us. Lord, may the love of Christ constrain us. May we leave this place, Lord, in a gr- with a greater love, a greater appreciation of what Jesus has done. And Lord, if He has loved us to go through all of this for us, will He not freely also give us all things? If we can trust Him, Lord, for our salvation, for our eternal life, can we not trust Him for our temporal? Lord, may we love Him and adore Him, walk with Him, and just sit at His feet and be thankful. And so, Lord, we pray that You will go before us now Make us people to whom walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. For it's in Christ's name I pray. And now, to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. May the Lord bless you this afternoon.